Welcome back to the Business of Biotech Cell and Gene Edition with yours truly, Matt Piller, and my incredible co-host, Aaron Harris, Chief Editor over at Cell and Gene. Aaron, you look well. Welcome. Thank you. Always a pleasure to be here. Uh, it's always a pleasure to have you. Uh, now, if you listen to the show much, you've caught on to the fact that one of the things I try to do when I'm studying up a bit on our guests is I, I try to figure out what was going on in their heads during their, their formative years back in their, their college and early work experience uh, years in particular. So today's guest is Filippo Petty. He's CEO at Clinical Stage uh, Cell and Gene Therapy Company, Celiad. And I'm gonna, try to, I'm gonna try to form up what was going on in Filippo's mind without knowing back when he was charting the course of, of his career. Filippo, first of all, welcome to the show. Now, thank you very much for, for having me. Pleasure, pleasure to have you. Now you you're waiting there with bated breath to hear my assumptions, and here, here's what they are. And I'm often corrected on these. Uh, but my assumption is that when you were an undergrad at Syracuse, you were keeping your life sciences options open, maybe thinking pre-med. You had a dual biochem and biology degrees, you know, so you're, you're an overachiever, going, going du- dual degrees, maybe thinking pre-med, keeping the options open. By the time graduation rolled around, though, you decided an MS in pharmaceutical sciences from Johns Hopkins would serve you just as well, perhaps as an MD and with far less overhead. Later, you did some pharmacy science bench work uh, and then really wisened up and went to Cornell for your MBA in finance, which was followed by a host of investment banking and consulting gigs where the real money is before landing the CFO and then CEO roles at Celiat. So how much did I get wildly wrong in that? In that? Well, I mean, yeah, you started off great. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I, look, I think you, you nailed some important parts there. Um, you know, what, one of the, the, the life-changing events I had actually when I was an undergrad, I, I was keeping my options open. Certainly, I've always been interested in sciences, the biology, biochemistry. I took a course where really we dug into cancer biology that can really begin to form the foundation, but it wasn't, um, you know, one of the driving factors uh, was my grandfather um, <laughs> who was diagnosed with uh, metastatic prostate cancer. Uh, here I am, um, you know, as a senior in Syracuse University and, and studying on this cancer, it's just amazing how it kind of just bridged everything and how do you find solutions? And at the time there weren't many therapies there, a lot of radiation Radiotherapy was being used, and, and chemotherapy was just coming onto the scene for prostate cancer. And um, I, I, having lived it, going, taking him to some of those treatments, uh, it crystallized for me that I wanted to do something in the field of oncology. And uh, you know that impact as you know, a 20, 22 year old uh, uh, young man just really allowed me to, to think about how can I make an impact not only on the, on, on the life of my grandfather and, and thinking about other patients who were suffering through um, dealing with prostate cancer and other indications as well um, that, you know, really uh, set, set the stage for me. And I think that was only amplified when one of my nephews uh, was born with uh, cancer as well. And mm-hmm. it just incredible, right? Just kind of seeing you from all different angles. How do you how do you find a, a, a drug or a target? And at that time, targeted therapies, it was, I remember a Time article in, uh, around Gleevec at the time, uh, Matinib, for the treatment of chronic myeloid leukemia. 
Uh, and that that medication essentially kind of changed the the life um, history of patients dealing with CML and the natural history of that disease. And here, you know, it's kind of a the the, the genome error and all these other kind of things in the background that were uh, really, you know, were the tea leaves I was reading that I needed to kind of get into this industry of biotech and and really find a way to to have an impact on patients' lives and maybe some of the science I would work on one day would would turn into a, a medicine. For, for patients out there. So yeah, a couple of those driving factors. And I was fortunate, you know, as I landed my first opportunities with a company called OSI Pharmaceuticals. Um, and this was uh, early 2000s. And OSI was known, its claim to fame was a, a, a drug they developed called Tarsiva or Lotnib uh, that was eventually approved for non-small cell lung cancer. Uh, the, at first, OSI was working with Pfizer and um, doing some of the drug discovery work. And this is where the the, the business light bulb uh, clicked on, Matt, where, where you, you touched upon this. OSI, because of an acquisition of Pfizer acquiring Warner Lamberth back in 2000, they had to divest the, the asset here. Warner Lamberth had one of these EGFR molecules that Tarsifa fell into the class of. And they had to quickly divest that asset back to OSI. And the, the stock for OSI ran up from about $8 to about $80 in a, in a two-week span. Mm-hmm. And you, you could just see the, the you know, the, I, I think about this all the time because I vividly remember. For, this, for, the, for, for, for a few minutes, the, the scientists stopped, uh, you know, doing their experiments. And you'd actually see a couple high fives going on in the bench as they were watching the stock price on, on, on one of these finance uh, websites uh, rocketing uh, up. And just and, and allowing me to see that. Uh, the the transactions that OSI did with Roche and Genentech to form really a partnership to to build upon that development path of Tarsiva and eventually get it approved and commercialized. Uh, that really set the scene for me in thinking about how can I marry this interest I have in, in, in business as well as you know building um, the 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 expertise that I've I've gained through the scientific side and, and marrying those two and eventually helping other companies raise capital or through mergers and acquisitions. Eventually, how I landed at Celiat is I was helping helping the company raise some capital in, in 2018. And uh, that led to me connecting with the board and management. And they asked me to join a CFO. And eventually, uh, I was uh, fortunate enough to be appointed CEO uh, last spring, the spring of 2019. So it's just been a, a tremendous ride. And I've been very fortunate that throughout my career, I've been able to kind of connect to all these different dots and being in the right place at the right time as well is a, is a big part of it. And, uh, and allowing me on a day-to-day basis, not only talk business and science and finance, but um, how, you know, we think about competitive landscapes and, and the, the yeah, treatment yeah. of patients and, and thinking about how that all comes together for us to, to put together our best foot forward. Because uh, at the end of the day, it comes down to, to our ability to, to, to deliver medications and, and treatment options for patients that are are suffering with uh, with indications that are, uh, are are tough not only on them but certainly their families. Sure. Yeah. Do you um do you, do you have the opportunity uh, in, in your role now to to still exercise some of those science chops beyond the leadership capacity? So, um, I mean, obviously, I, I, I do a nice job of digging in. I I, I rely upon some. Of my, my first foray on Wall Street was on equity research, so where it was. All about, you know, what does a competitive landscape look like? What are some of those details within the science, not only on the clinical side, but maybe on the preclinical 
uh, and assessing some of those, you know, these, these molecules in advance and maybe them even entering the clinic. So I did spend some time this past weekend actually just going through some of the updates that occurred over the last uh, week or so. We, we presented some data at the American Society of Hematology meeting for the company last week. And actually, I took the time to kind of circle back on some of our peers and uh, digging into some of the science and some of the novel uh, programs that are out there and, and targets that are being developed for oncology. Awesome. Yeah. So sure. it, it's, it's really, it's really fun to, to, you know, I, I live the dream to be honest with you every day I get a chance to, to uh, continue and I'll be the first one to admit I'm not the best scientist in the world. So I actually was fortunate <laughs> to, to land in the role where I, I get a chance to um, really bring in all these different parts of, of my past experiences um, on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. Yeah, sure. I want to talk a little bit about specifically ciliad and and what it's really known for. Um, you know, as it applies to the treatment of cancer by, you know, your non-gene edited approaches, ciliad oncology specifically, you guys are known for the different approaches to discovery and development, especially of allogeneic CART T cell therapy candidates. So can you talk us through Ciliad's differentiated approaches and how they differ from maybe other biotechs developing off-the-shelf therapies. I'd love to uh, walk you through uh, maybe going down a little bit of the uh, history lane here in terms of where Celiad initially started uh, in the CAR-T field. A couple of years back, we acquired uh, some assets uh, from a spin out of Dartmouth College, uh, some assets in intellectual property, um, in particular around a specific receptor called NKG2D. I won't get too much into the details, but say a receptor that surveillances that originally um, is identified from the natural killer cell. So a lot of innate kind of surveillance here. Um, with that foray, we, we moved into where we started our efforts were on the autologous side, right? Kind of the personalized CAR-T approach. And, and for everyone out there, um, as a reminder, CAR-Ts are essentially immune cells. They're white blood cells that we, we take from patients' blood draws, and uh, we engineer them to express these antibodies, sometimes called CARs, uh, that target specific molecules. In the case that NKGTT, it targets stress ligands. So if a cell is stressed out, either because it's hijacked uh, from uh, a cancer or it's expressing these stress because it's going through some type of uh, proliferation, typically on the neurovascularization, or if it's stressed out because of the tumor microenvironment, uh, it'll put out these, these flags for, for the, the receptor to target and to attack. Uh, some other, other approaches uh, focus on specific mutations or driver mutations, uh, things that are popular out there that are being evaluated are CD19 and BCMA, and we have a program in BCMA as well. But the autologous is that personalized approach, right? Taking it from, from a patient, engineering it, manufacturing it, and then sending it back to the patient. And uh, that was where we originally cut our teeth in the CAR-T space. Over the last few years, we've also um, pushed forward some allogeneic or what we call off-the-shelf approaches, where we're taking donor-derived healthy pay, you know, healthy uh, volunteers who, uh, who offer up their white blood cells for us to then take and engineer, uh, express uh, these receptors or antibodies in, and then go out and treat patients with. And there's a dynamic there. Uh, one of the reasons why the overall field, and we've had a few approvals on the autologous side, the personalized side, we're expecting a few more here from our, our peers in the space over the next uh, year or so, 
Um, but the difference is in, in terms of the scalability, right? The, the donor derived or the allogeneic approach allows you to go not only from one to one, let's say patient to patient, but the ability to go from a donor, a volunteer, um, a blood draw to maybe treating up to 15, 20, hundreds of patients. And depending on obviously the optimization for, for us, uh, we have, we have run programs in both. So we have that autologous uh, program in, in acute myeloid leukemia uh, that we are currently in phase one. We also have a program in metastatic colorectal cancer where we have an allogeneic approach where we've actually taken from one donor uh, some, some white blood cells and we've been able in our phase one treat up to 15 patients. So there's scalability there and how we think about allogeneic and how the, the CAR-T field will continue to evolve. Uh, from our perspective, and, and to your question, Aaron, where we focus our efforts on the non-gene edited side is many of our peers have focused on gene editing, right? Knocking out a specific molecule. Uh, as you can think about, if I'm taking a donor-derived sample and I'm treating patients with that, there may be some rejection, right? The rejection of the cells from either the host or the host cells um, the donor cells going into the host and, and, and also attacking the patient there. So there's two things that, that, that come in play on, on the context of taking the donor cells and treating patients. There's a specific molecule called the TCR or T cell receptor that exists on all these white blood cells that you need to knock out. And most approaches have been from a gene genome uh, perspective using molecular scissors, uh, you know, CRISPR-Cas9, for instance, right, which is mm -hmm. very popular and, and talked about in, in, in many applications outside of maybe oncology. But using that molecular scissor to knock out the, the TCR, um, that allowing that cell to then when it dosed into the patient uh, wouldn't cause any havoc or, or immune responses. Uh, from our perspective, we, we do the same thing um, in terms of making that cell compatible to the patient. However, we, instead of knocking it out at the genome level using these molecular scissors, we actually use a non-gene editing approach and we use our first technology, uh, which ends up uh, just making the TCR dysfunctional. So essentially kind of a competitor uh, inhibitor approach. Uh, there's many components of the TCR. We express one of the components. And when we express one of those components, what we call TIM, um, that TIM technologies just makes that TCR dysfunctional, so you don't have that, what they call alloreactivity or kind of that immune response to taking that donor um, cell and, and treating patients. The other technology is, again, also a non-gene uh, non edited approach, and that's what we call shRNA, or which stands for short hairpin RNA. And, and that is akin to RNA interference. So there's other companies in the in the biotech space who have done great, you know, great work with RNA interference. We've seen a couple of approvals there as well um, over the last few years. And, and that's the technology where we're not knocking out, let's say, as compared to the gene editors, but we're knocking down the ability for the cells to express the TCR. So uh, a slight twist to the story, but both allowing us to, to show an absence of what we hope to uh, be a, is alloreactivity or the, the cells not attacking the patient. Very cool. I want to, uh, <clears throat> I want to follow that up. I mean, obviously it's a, it's an exercise in, in, in engineering and science uh, and it's a complicated one. It's not like, you know, producing 
even traditional biologics, small molecule traditional biologics, which raises as as cell and gene therapies kind of mature, it raises this question for companies like yours, new, new and emerging uh, cell and gene companies, around to outsource or, or to insource, you know, in-house manufacturing outsource. You guys, you you uh, you run your own manufacturing facility in Belgium, is that correct? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I want to ask you a couple questions about that. Let's just start with why, 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 uh, why did you determine to, you know, perhaps outlay that capital investment and, 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 and maintain, develop and maintain that uh, manufacturing facility in in Belgium? Yeah, we're fortunate certainly um, to have our facility that sits right across the street from our headquarters. Uh, We're in a town called Mont-Saint-Guibert, about 30 minutes south of Brussels uh, within Belgium. Uh, The the facility itself, it's about uh, 10,000 square feet or so. the uh, facility was, it came through and, and it kind of goes back to our earlier history. Um, we're, we're originally called uh, Cardio3. We're a company focused on uh, cardiovascular diseases and using cell, cell therapy in that case. So it's, it's been part of our DNA, let's say, no pun intended, for, for over a decade. Uh, we've been fortunate to rely on that technology as we made the transition from a cardio-based cell therapy company to an oncology-based CAR-T company. Uh, and really producing, instead of producing mesenchymal cells, we're producing immune cells now. And that has been uh, a part of our success in not only transitioning from cardio to uh, um, immune oncology, uh, but also as we've pushed forward these different programs, um, you know, as we talked about originally having an autologous program, in in in, a, in, a, in our pipeline in terms of for the treatment of acute myeloid leukemia, but as we've ushered forward additional pipeline candidates, it's been critical for us and being able to not only go through some uh, manufacturing amendments that we've done a few times through our, our programs, or in particular our our CAD01 uh, legacy program, uh, but thinking about how that has moved into. Uh, the reps that it takes, right? And how we think about manufacturing, not only the current programs, but our future programs as well. So every time our scientists or our developers touch the the cell therapies or design a cell therapy, that eventually leads to the manufacturing side. Having that expertise in-house allows us to be nimble, allows us to quickly move uh, to, depending on how, obviously, you know, from a, a certain extent, the cell therapy space is lightning fast, um, mm-hmm. And then also allowing us to think about how do we improve that process for future uh, CAR-Ts that will come down the pike. And, um, you know, from, from that perspective, it has been a, a key asset for us as we've moved through transition, not only from, as I said, into uh, the cardio, uh, from the cardio into the immune oncology space, but how we think about these next set of uh, programs that we we plan to move forward, specifically around the allogeneic franchise. Yeah, I can see where there'd be some inherent benefits in having you know your your own own sandbox to play in, so to speak. Um, is it ever yeah, because many of many of our peers, you know, I think uh, to a certain extent have not had those that, that yeah. benefit. And you know, one of the other things that certainly came through the the capabilities that we've built is we've we've run multiple studies uh, shipping products across different countries. Um, and specifically around cell therapy. So we have all that know-how that sometimes doesn't, you know, doesn't resonate within an organization until you kind of get to a certain level. And so I think we start the ground, we start at the ground running based on that, that backdrop. Yeah. 
have have there been any points uh, since since you've been at Celiad where you've looked at it and sort of considered perhaps the potential that there might be a little liability in having that uh, in in house manufacturing the the overhead whatever it might be or or is it all all upside? I I think you make a great point. And I think it's, um, I think we talked a little bit earlier around the kind of that Goldilocks scenario, right? I think it's not too small and it's not too big. It's just right for a company of our size and shape and our ability to get programs into phase one, phase two development. There's certainly a cost associated with it. And there's certainly some uh, things we'll, we'll need to continue to to put in place to maintain that facility. Um and we, we do think it, it is a, a net positive for us to have that in-house. And as we grow, look, we'll have to consider perhaps the, the ability to build some additional infrastructure, or there's certainly what I've seen uh, coming through um, the, the, the landscape is there's a lot of great manufacturers that have built uh, facilities there to work with companies uh, such as ourselves mm-hmm. uh, as we grow and, and move towards later stage development and potentially commercialization as well. And one of those things I think that is a benefit is once we lock down a process, especially around cell therapies, we can then take that tech transfer it out and, and move it move it further down the pike. Um, yeah, yeah. And, and I'll give you another benefit that we had. One of our earlier programs that wasn't our allergen A program, our CED 101 program, that was you know, based on some laws and regulations in Belgium, we couldn't manufacture that in-house. We actually had to go out and find a, a, a CDMO to, to help us with the manufacturing of that first product and for the first uh, leg of the phase one trial there. Without having an internal facility, we were able to now tech transfer that back in-house. So now we're able to control and try to optimize. And we've obviously gone back to the same recipe that we, what our, our collaborators did. But now we're able to then improve upon that if necessary. And I think without having that manufacturing capability in-house, I think we would have been stuck trying to find another CNMO, trying to control that tech transfer from one partner to another third party. So I think that alleviated some stress there as well. So it's been, yeah. it's been really... Um, a, a fantastic asset, maybe one we don't talk enough about, but certainly allowed us to to uh, push forward with the, the pipeline and the programs. Yeah, I hadn't thought about it. It's, a, it's super interesting. I hadn't thought about the you know tech transfer out and the, the potential benefit of tech transfer back in. I mean, that's you know something that yeah, great success by the team, and obviously took its time to do that, but allows us to uh, control the processes now for that one program, which has now become our lead asset to a certain extent. It's a, an allogeneic uh, candidate for the treatment of solid tumors and, and one of our, uh, I think, uh, flagship candidates, given the fact that it's certainly novel and um, not only, again, using NKG2D, but uh, for the treatment of refractory uh, colorectal cancer, which is, uh, in our belief, one of the leading assets for, for solid tumor. The Business of Biotech is brought to you in partnership with Cytiva. Together, we're committed to helping the leaders of new and emerging biopharma companies navigate the financial, organizational, human resources, and regulatory waters you'll encounter on your way from discovery to the clinic and beyond. Check out a host of useful resources for biotech leaders at Cytiva's Emerging Biotech Accelerator at cytivalifesciences.com backslash emerging biotech. That's C-Y-T-I-V-A lifesciences.com backslash emerging biotech. It's early to, you know, to, to sort of project. You guys have, I think, three, if I'm not mistaken, three phase one candidates and, and three 
preclinical candidates. Looking ahead, I mean, can you comment at all on the um, potential advantage of having in-house manufacturing as it relates to, you know, commercial scalability, like looking, looking way down the road? Yeah, I think there was originally, in, you know, inclinations, and, and I think we've certainly scaled this out in terms of thinking about if we had to do kind of a soft launch uh, around, you know, one of these programs. And I think our, our certainly our strategy has shifted, and what we are like to 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 put in place is, um, I think right now we're manufacturing all three programs. We have the one autologous and the two allogeneic that have come out of our facility. We've seen a tremendous benefit having lived on both sides uh, of the spectrum. Uh, being able to put forward an allogeneic campaign, right? Because we're creating multiple cells uh, for uh, the full clinical trial versus kind of that just-in-time manufacturing. Mm -hmm. That to us allows us to think about how do we build the facility? How do we improve the facility? Thinking about the next round of candidates that are coming down the pike and what we need to put in place to to most op, uh, best optimize the current footprint. So again, that's that, that that scenario where it's just right for our size, right? It's not too much. And I think if we were focusing specifically on autologous, we would be thinking about having the build out infrastructure, perhaps even in the U.S. to to satisfy uh, maybe the, not only the the commercial needs, but maybe even the the developmental needs and getting to a phase three, et cetera. I think that we've uh, concluded that it's probably best for us to thinking about ALO moving forward with the ALO programs, the technologies that we have on the autologous side, we're going to push that as far as we can. Uh, we'll, we'll see if we can find a potential partner, but I think we'll look to leverage, uh, should the data, you know, emerge that it becomes a, a viable strategy for the treatment of acute myeloid leukemia or myeloid dyspastic syndromes that we leverage some of the good work and not try to recreate the wheel uh, but leverage some of the the resources that other partner potential partners have put in place around not only manufacturing but commercialization. Yeah, sure. And, and speaking of not trying to recreate the wheel, certainly here you've developed a lot of best practices, learnings, what have you, regarding in-house manufacturing for your allogeneic therapies, but also your partnership with your CDMOs that you mentioned earlier. Uh, you know, manufacturing these therapies is an expensive endeavor. And so talk to us a little bit about going forward, what you've learned in terms of best practices, you know, as you move on and perhaps to the other biotech listening. Yeah, I think the first thing is that there's, you know, in manufacturing, I mean, every process is unique to itself. And we've seen that across our different programs. You know, what we use for the autologous program is slightly different than what we use for the 101 program, which is slightly different than what we use for the 211 SHRNA-based program. So, I, I, you know, what we are trying to put forward is based on all those learnings, how do we put together a process that it becomes a little bit more plug and play and modular for, for us, rather than having these bespoke kind of processes for each one. And I think we are moving towards that for our SHRNA platform. Um, and I think that speaks to the technology we spoke about earlier around it being non-genetic. One, one of the things that we think is certainly differentiated and why we love, and I think this is Aaron, to your point, the um, around the costs associated with this is we use in both technologies, non-genetic tech, an all-in-one vector approach. So what does that mean? So that means in one vector, you know, in our case, we use retroviral vectors. Uh, there's also lenti vectors that some of our uh, peers use. But in our case, we use retroviral uh, vectors. And within the vector, we incorporate a couple things, right? So I think about this in the context of a 
I, I like pies, so I like to talk about it in terms of pies. And in and, and and, and this pie scenario, and everything is within that same pie. It depends on what you're going to change. So all your basic kind of ingredients are going to be there. And the only thing you would think about changing is perhaps the fruit, right? Am I going to have blueberry pie today, cherry pie, strawberry pie, apple pie? Everything else in terms of uh, the vector is going to be most likely the same, the same SHRNA technology or TIM technology, same allogeneic technology. Perhaps what we also incorporate is a positive selection marker um, and maybe some other, uh, let's say, add-ons like uh, you know, we've, we've thought about adding some cytokines and things like that or, or other bells and whistles to that construct. But that's all going to be expressed from a single vector where some of our peers have to do multiple vectors, multiple, uh, based on that, multiple selections and enrichments, we can do it all from one process. So in, for instance, in the 211 program, this is our BCMA program. In that program, we have the BCMA CAR, right? That's our antibody that's going out and finding the multiple myeloma cells that we want to target. Um, we also incorporate the shRNA technology that's within the same vector, and that's going to make the cells allo for us and off the shelf. And we also incorporate a positive selection marker. This is a real uh, key here. And the reason why that's important is because we can positively select the allogeneic cells that we create. So if we run our processes, we run our manufacturing, we have a little tag that's sitting on the outside of the cell that allows us to pull that down. I only want those cells that are expressing that because if it's expressing that positive selection marker, that means it's expressing the other two components, the shRNA technology as well as the BCMA car. And as we think about the iteration and next generation approaches, the more we load into this vector, uh, we'll be able to then pull it down using the same positive selection marker. And that's key because as these technologies as these modalities get sophisticated, more some more sophisticated for next generation approaches, you always want to be able to fully enrich. So we have less manipulations. If we can pull down all the cells that have all three of those components within them, it allows us to then think about um, the ability of scalability, manufacturability, and eventually commercialization for those products. And that is one of the things we like to highlight is this all-in-one vector. And every, since everything is within the same pie, I just have to put it in front of me and I can, I can figure out how we're, how we're going to change perhaps the fruit within it, but everything else is going to stay the same. I mean, who can't relate to a good pie analogy? I mean, you know? <laughs> I, I love, I look, I maybe I have maybe had a few too many this, uh, this holiday season so far, but. Uh, it's only, it's yeah. only just, yeah. it's only, only just begun, Filippo. Yeah. Um, I want to, I want to jump back to the, the meeting that you referenced earlier. You, met, you referenced the ASH meeting a little bit earlier in our conversation and um, your, your news coming out of that ASH meeting was uh, some ups, some downs. Uh, you announced the discontinuation of one clinical candidate, uh, phase one clinical candidate, but some promising, um, some, some promising preliminary data for, for another, uh, CYID 02. So tell us, uh, you know, what, what you learned from the, you know, quote unquote failure or dis discontinuation of, of one candidate, uh, that you're applying to the, the development of, of the second one. Yeah, the, the, it really has, you know, we've been thinking about the 01 and 02 candidates as really a single franchise for a little bit. And, and, and these, these, again, are our programs for acute myeloid leukemia, myeloid dysplastic syndrome, 
patients with uh, relapse refractory disease in both of those uh, indications. Mm-hmm. The one one program is the one we originally picked up from uh, our, our friends at Dartmouth and in, in, in the spin-out of, uh, of Dartmouth College. Um, it is where we've cut our teeth in the CAR-T space over the last few years. Again, uh, based on this NKGTD receptor, uh, we, we were thinking we could go broad with this program. Eventually, we landed on focusing our efforts around AML and MDS. Uh, and we've tried, you know, we've gone through really the last few years in stretching out the biology here around NKGTD. How do we, we, we serve some initial signs of, of clinical activity that we wanted to further enhance. Uh, and we've tried a couple of things. We've tried multiple conditioning regimens, even non-preconditioning regimen. We've tried multiple doses, multiple dosing schedules, um, multiple manufacturing uh, that we talked about. We are, this is actually, we're on our third manufacturing process. Um, all of that uh, eventually led us to Seattle too. And it was a little bit of the changing of the guards. I mean, it was certainly, um, you know, disappointing that the 01 data didn't live up to the, the initial expectations that we had. But I think what comes out of the American Society of Hematology meeting is the 02 preliminary data. Uh, and we do certainly see that there is a differentiation there between that next generation approach, which builds upon, right? It's been, it's been an iterative process for us, and we've been really at the, the forefront, forefront of this NKG2D biology the last few years. But it eventually culminated with the Seattle 2 candidate, which is really a learning experience from all the different efforts that we've put. And we tried to make 01 really uh, get to the finish line, but unfortunately it's not, you know, it's not going to get us to that next stage of development, but we hope that the initial data from 02 perhaps can drive us there. And what 02 is also building upon is not only what we've gone, gone through with the a one candidate, but bringing in some additional learnings around the biology. And we talked about this SHRNA tech, uh, technology that we, we have, um, and, and we, we've been using it within the ALO context, but our, actually our first um, first kind of proof of concept was in, within the O2 construct. So we use SHRNA to target some of the, the ligands uh, that are, are targeted by NKG2T. And by knocking those down, we believe that has led to uh, an O2 candidate that is differentiated versus its uh, its predecessor. So, um, you know, again, as, as to, your point, to your point, Matt, a little bit of, uh, down, a little bit, I think we ended up on a high note with mm-hmm. regards to where the AML and MDS program land. And it's still early days uh, with the O2 candidate, but, it, you know, we had, a, we had a, the initial data that came out from the cycle one trial um, and, I, and I'll, I'll tip my hat to our, to our developers here because we did run a similar study with the O1 trial as well called Depley Think. And I don't want to go you know, too far down the rabbit hole here, but when you compare similar conditions with a similar construct outside of maybe this SHRNA, there was a clear difference uh, from our perspective in terms of the ability for uh, the O2 candidate to drive more deeper responses um, you know, some of those were stable diseases, but we're seeing folks who are, you know, having a more long, having a longer impact of perhaps maybe there's better in, uh, engraftment within the bone marrow that we, we need to test out. But there's something that's going on in using this novel construct. Um, and we learned, you know, that sometimes it's, uh, you know, not every drug is going to, to work in, 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 in development. And uh, we recognize that it was just time to, to hand over the torch to, to the O2 candidate. Sure. Well, we want to keep going with the good news, though. Uh, 
Silly had recently announced uh, your dosing of your first patient of it's the phase one immunity trial, right? Correct. The immunity yes. one trial of CAD two eleven. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yes. So as I said, in the as we brought in this uh, non-gene edited approach, we we first thought about it using the shRNA, and that I think is proof of concept with the O two on the autologous side. Now. Uh, building upon that, we we also believe the shRNA can do a lots lots of different things, and one of them is to create allogeneic CAR T cells for us. So the two eleven program uh, is our first shRNA based allogeneic approach. It again is using shRNA technology to target the TCR component, um, uh, specifically CD three zeta, and the phase one immunity trial uh, that we uh, just recently kicked off will evaluate three different dose levels for the treatment of relapsed refractory multiple myeloma patients. And it says, uh, as I described earlier, uh, 211 is is uh, comprised of the BCMA CAR, right? The antibody that will, will track down these myeloma cells, uh, the shRNA technology to make it allogeneic and off the shelf. Uh, and lastly, the uh, positive selection marker for us to enrich for those cells. And what we've seen, and in, in, in we're going to see if we're going, we're going to test this out, actually, in the Immunity 1 trial. But one of the things that we've um, picked up in using a non-gene edited approach, specifically the shRNA technology, is that when you compare and contrast it to a gene edited approach, we're actually seeing, seeing in the context without the car, at least, so now we have to you know, evaluate this in the in the clinical setting. But without the CAR construct, we're seeing a longer persistence of these cells that we're creating, these allogeneic cells. So why may that be? So unlike gene editing, where you fully knock out that gene from the genome, right? It can't be expressed. It's like an on-off switch. It's either there or it's not. So using a molecular scissor to take it out, it's it, it can't be... Um, uh, transcribed and translated right into the TCR. In the context of the shRNA, uh, you know, it's it, it's actual knocking down the the through RNA interference of that component, and so through RNA interference, we don't get to the point where we fully knock down the expression. There, we have some very low level expression, perhaps, of the TCR that's floating on these cells, these allogeneic cells we create. So, why is that key? That's key because the cells, in our belief, and this is our thesis, is that they remain happy. They, you know, that a T cell—that's the type of immune cell we use, the white blood cell. Um, a T cell defines itself actually by this TCR. So our belief and the way we describe this is that the TCR is knocked out in the case of a gene, you know, a gene edited approach, then it kind of goes into what we believe is called, kind of, you know, uh, uh, identity crisis in a way. It doesn't reckon, you know, it doesn't recognize itself really as a T cell. And that, maybe that perhaps is leading to less of a persistence of those cells, at least that we've seen in our in our hands. Now, when we look at it from the, the shRNA approach, since we're knocking down and not fully knocking out, there's a low level of this TCR that perhaps keeps these T cells happy, keeps them proliferating, perhaps leading to that persistence that we're seeing. And that's key because that persistence, as you can imagine, it's it's creating an error under the curve, right? So if our, our gene editing friends or technologies are knocking down and those cells are not persisting after being administered to a patient versus patients who are receiving cells that are created with an shRNA, it's trying to take advantage of that area under the curve, perhaps that longer persistence. So that's one of the things we'll look to evaluate in the Immunity 1 trial and what has us excited. Now, 
uh, its early days. Um, but that was one of the reasons why we think this is a differentiated approach to off-the-shelf uh, uh, CAR-T approaches. Sure, sure. Uh, real quick before we wrap up, what is in the pipeline for Ciliad Oncology? Yeah, that, that we haven't covered, right? We talked about quite a few of those candidates. <laughs> what, are, what are some of the uh, maybe lesser known up-and-comers we should be talking about? Yeah, so certainly we are looking at next-generation approaches to NKGTD. You know, so we love the broad applicability of NKGTD, and I touched upon this early. This is a receptor that comes from the natural killer cell, um, really important from an, an innate surveillance. These NKGTD ligands, and there's eight of them, they're expressed on about 80% of cancers. Right now, our focuses are on colorectal cancer, refractory colorectal cancer with our 101 program, which is NKGTD. On the autologous side, we talked about the CAD02 program for acute myeloid leukemia, myelodysplastic syndromes. But there's a whole host of other cancers, uh, in particular solid cancers that express these stress mm -hmm. that we believe that a, an NKGTD receptor approach could work. And so we're thinking about next generation approaches and some of the things we talked about. Um, one of the benefits of using an SHRNA platform, and that's really what we'll be focusing our efforts on, is that we can do knockdown of many things. So right now, we've talked about O2, we knocked down these uh, two, two ligands called MCA and MCB out of the eight that NKGT targets. In the case of 211, we knocked down one of the TCR components to make it allogeneic. But we've shown that the SHRNA technology could allow us to target up to four of four genes or four proteins of interest simultaneously. And we're actually trying to build upon that as well. What we what we like to call multiplexing. So what's in the pipeline is next generation approaches, not only around NKG2D, but next generation approaches for us um, in using the shRNA to multiplex, being able to do multiple, trying to create a specific phenotype perhaps for specific cancer. And you know we have we have certainly talked about um, the the 103 program and the 231 program in the past. Those are our next generation NKG2Ds. But what's what's keen for us is to identify other perhaps receptors, other targets that we can build upon uh, within this all-in-one vector approach. Going back to the pie analogy, right? So as we think about next generation candidates, we like to form my ingredients in the pie and that construct and then change out which receptor, what other targets we can go through and bolting that onto our base construct within the all-in-one vector approach. That's where we're really focusing our efforts on and thinking about those next generation pipeline candidates. Very cool. I, uh, I want to give you an opportunity to share some concluding thoughts, but I want to ask you a specific question for a, for a concluding thought, of course, if, of course. if I can, because you've got this really interesting uh, background, as we acknowledged at, at the beginning of the show. Um, you've got the science background, you've got a, a, a deep uh, business background. Um, now you're two plus years into it at, at Celiad uh, as CFO and CEO. If you you know, recognizing that the cell and gene space is kind of early innings, if you could give um, your best advice from the from the business side to the science-minded leader, new, new leader of a new uh, cell and gene therapy company, who who may not have your business chops, what, what would that be? What what would be the kind of the 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 best golden nugget of business advice you could offer up to a science-minded cell and gene leader? Yeah, I, I certainly appreciate the uh, the opportunity. Look, I think from my perspective, and this is the balance, right? This is the balance, and and and, and 
on a day-to-day basis, I wear the CEO hat, I wear the CFO hat, and it's marrying the two. And again, I've been fortunate to do that. And, and thinking about this modality, and to your point, man, it is early days, right? And I think for when I came on board as CEO, it was clear to me that we needed to move more and more towards allogeneic off the shelf. We need to be able to compete with other biologics out there, monoclonal antibodies, bispecific antibodies, uh, you know, those T-cell engagers that we talked about, Mm -hmm. um, and and perhaps, you know, the ADCs. And and to your point, Aaron, you know, these, these are, these, you know, modalities um, need to compete and need to be able to uh, compete on the commercial scale. And we need to have opportunities if we're going to go out and treat patients that it is, a viable solution to the overall economic uh, uh, effort here, and a pharmacoeconomic benefit that needs to go be you know needs to be baked into those solutions. So, from my perspective, it's certainly you need to follow the science, right? I mean, you need to follow the science and be able to push forward next generation approaches and novel ways to 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 find the solution. But at the at the back of the mind, you need to also keep in consideration eventual that commercial prospect and what will this look like and can the system really handle these types of costs, et cetera, um, not only for the, the overall treatment of the patient, but the, you know, the, the healthcare system. And then thinking in mind, um, the, the ability to, you know, can I usher forward that something that's not only interesting and a big part of the drug discovery development is uh, interesting for ourselves and for clinicians and, and uh, the folks out there doing the, the great scientific efforts, but from an investor standpoint, to make sure I can fund those efforts, uh, make sure I can maybe perhaps find a, a potential solution that uh, strategic uh, farmers or big fi- biotech companies may be interested in partnering us, uh, partnering with us. So it, it is a certainly, I think, a holistic view of all the different parties and stakeholders within the ecosystem that needs to come into into consideration. So that having that scientific edge is is key because you're able to quickly deduce, you know, and and, and follow uh, the important aspects of it. But bringing in some of the business side, uh, business elements into into the equation. That, that has to start at day one as well uh, to make sure that in the end you have a solution that that all stakeholders and all parties would be receptive to. Awesome. Well, we'll be we'll be watching uh, watching your company, Filippo, paying attention to your progress there, and uh, congratulations on your success to date. Here's to continued success in 2021. Well, thank you very much again, and uh, that was certainly a pleasure speaking with both of you, and and uh, we appreciate all the. All the kind remarks as well. Yeah, thanks for letting Aaron and I grill you for a little bit. My pleasure. So that's Aaron Harris and Celiad Oncology's Filippo Petty. I'm Matt Piller, and this is the Business of Biotech. We're produced by Bioprocess Online in partnership with Cytiva, a company devoted to supporting new and emerging biotechs, including cell and gene companies, indeed and in action. And nowhere is this devotion more apparent than at the portal dedicated to you the emerging biotech leader at cytiva.com backslash emerging biotech. That's C-Y-T-I-V as in Victor, A.com backslash emerging biotech. Check that out. Check us out at cellandgene.com and bioprocessonline.com. Sign up for Aaron's newsletter and then sign up for mine. Give this podcast five stars if you liked it. And until next week, thanks for listening.